Soon may the IT team come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Uh, Callum, have you heard of the tragedy of plasmycin? Um, was plasmycin a, some sort of Greek hero? Maybe in the, in the Odyssey or something? Yes, he was a cousin to Sisomycin. Sisomycin, oh. Um, no, plasmycin was or is a cisomycin-derived next-generation aminoglycoside. But, James, what's cisomycin? It's an aminoglycoside. Oh. <laughs> uh, so these are all sort of cousins of gentamycin, tobramycin, and amicacin. And listeners may have seen plasmycin mentioned, particularly in the IDSA guidance for difficult-to-treat gram-negative infections alongside amicacin. They, they list it as, a, as an option, and they, they have a sort of order of preference, which is that if you can use gent and tober, fine. If not, uh, you can use amicacin, and if not, then plasmycin. It was sort of created to be stable against amylglycoside-modifying enzymes, AIMS are a significant uh, cause of aminoglycoside resistance, and having something that was resistant to degradation by those enzymes would be quite beneficial and broaden its spectrum of activity. And so that's what this uh, company set out to do. They found a chemical called a plasmycin in the end. It's not resistant to other resistance mechanisms, so like 16-SRNA methylation or reduced concentration in the cell because of efflux pumps, all that sort of stuff. But it is resistant to the to aims and therefore was kind of touted as a, a potential treatment for XDR, mm. uh, gram-negative organisms, now called DTR, difficult-to-treat resistance organisms. Great. So why is it a tragedy and not a, a story of heroism? Well, hang on. First, I'll tell you about what it works against. So in terms of its spectrum of activity, it sort of works against MDR intrabatteraceae. Do you mean intrabatterales? In terms of its spectrum of activity... It wouldn't be an episode of the pod about James saying intrabatteraceae at least once mm, instead of saying intrabatterales. Yeah, you're right. We'll, we'll have a little like, tick counter on the website. Is it, is it, um... Yeah, when I, when I say intrabatteraceae, I take a drink. Um, <laughs> it's actually variable against Pseudomonas. Um, it's it's not that good, but and doesn't have any activity against Acinetobacter or Stenotrophomonas. But that's still, you know, it's got a a niche, and difficult to treat gram negative resistance is so important that both IDSA and ESPID brought out guidelines specifically on it. So it's not to be sniffed at. So this all sounds great. And I'm really excited to use it. Well, you never will, because we don't have a license in Europe. And that's the tragedy. Oh, and how how no, uh, to put it in a Scottish way? How <laughs> no, uh, because... Uh, so what happened was um, the original company that was making it was, I think, a cowgen. I don't know. I'm probably murdering the pronunciation of that. But they... Yeah, you, you always know, get the pronunciation wrong on this this podcast. Yeah, so not me. a drug, any drug really, uh, the average cost to get it from inception to phase three trials and approval by the FDA is $500 million. And after that, 
it has to make about $35 million a year to break even uh, because there are overheads in terms of cost to manufacture, cost to distribute, and pharmacovigilance. And that's before you've even actually marketed the thing uh, to doctors, which is a big part of of um, of getting a, a new drug onto the market. And, and that, that happens in America, and then it sort of feeds out to the rest of the rest of the world. Um, so they got FDA approval in 2018, and their sales over the following year were $1 million, and they went bankrupt shortly after. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> why did that happen? Well, the initial marketing authority was really narrow. It was just for complicated UTI. So not just UTI, but specifically complicated UTI. And that meant that even if you wanted to use it, you would either have to use it off license or be using it for quite a sort of a niche scenario in which people would arguably want to use the antibiotics that they, they're used to. Um, and uh, this, you know, caught the, this one year, uh, one million pounds turnover was nowhere near enough mm. uh, to recoup them. They were they were uh, deep in the red, and they went bankrupt. And then another drug company purchased it for about sixteen million. So sixteen million pounds for a new antibiotic is, you know, pennies on the dollar. It's like incredibly cheap. And at the time, there wasn't an EMA European Medicines Authority. Uh, license yet. So this second company, CIPLA, applied to the EMA and they said, uh, we'd like to market this in Europe. Uh, what do we have to do? And so the EMA came back and they said, well, first, you haven't done any trials in children. And secondly, the sterilization process for these drugs that is FDA approved, we don't approve of it. So you need to think of a new sterilization process, which is favored or, or acceptable to us. And so... <laughs> The CIPLA promptly withdrew their application in June 2020, saying that moving forward was uneconomic and therefore we don't have a license in Europe. The EMA has done really good things over the past sort of 10 or 15 years, getting drug companies to behave themselves. They're a lot more strict than uh, the FDA are in that regard, and they have lots of kind of regulations, they love a regulation, do the EMA on clinical trials. And one thing that they've tried to enforce a lot over the years has been trials in children. Because up until fairly recently, drugs weren't really, trials weren't really done in children. They would do the adult trial and they would extrapolate to a sort of a kiddie dose and, and get kind of uh, usage approval that way. Or the drug had been used historically in children and it was sort of grandfathered in uh, to the children's formulary. And the EMA wanted to kind of fight against that. But the issue there is that doing clinical trials in children is ludicrously expensive and prone to litigation and getting people to participate in the trial is really, really difficult. And so having that as a roadblock on its own was probably insurmountable. And then you know, not not approving of the sterilization process was like the final nail in the coffin. And so CIPLA withdrew uh, their application. They just said, okay, we're just going to market it in the US. We're not going to market it in Europe at all. 
So, so that sterilization process, is it, is it like something about the way that they were doing or proposing? Don't ask it me about it, Kyle, because I've got no idea why the EMA didn't like it and why the FDA did. Okay. It's interesting sometimes as well when you, t- you come with a new thing and say, we've got this new drug that we want approved and people will, will scrutinize it and take a lot of issue with it. But something that's been going on for a while doesn't go through that same scrutiny. Yeah. This, um, you know, plasmycin, it was a relatively recent invention. It's one of the most recently invented uh, antibiotics. And I think in part it was this fiasco which led to the idea that maybe we should be paying for antibiotics on a on a subscription, subscription. model. Yeah, yeah I so, saw there was a thing, was it from BIA, that was talking about the subscription model for cofidericol and... Is there there's other ones as well? Yeah, so kefidericol or kefidericol or cefidericol or cefidericol, people will no doubt correct us, and keftazidim avabactam. Yeah, that was the other one. And I can't, I think meropenem vaborbactam also. Oh, right. So all the, all the ones that are being kind of used a bit more for like difficult to treat mm. beta-lactamase resistance and carbapenemases and stuff. Is that only in NHS England or is that a UK-wide scheme? I think it's I think it's UK wide okay. because I, I think NHS Scotland basically said like we want a part of this too. Yeah. And right. uh and Wales and Northern Ireland as well. So NHS England put in a procurement order and for the companies, uh for Kefidericol that's Shinogi, I don't know who it is for the others, they they have this thing where they say, Okay, you you're gonna get a chunk of money and we're going to use as much Kefidericol or as little as we like up to a certain limit. And I think if it, you know, we use more than so many doses, we start having to pay per dose. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, it's been called the Netflix model. And the idea is that it now is going to be worth a drug company's while to develop an antibiotic. Poor Akeogen or Akaogen or whatever, however you pronounce their name, spending 10 to 15 years producing plasmycin and then promptly going bankrupt a year after it gets approved, and then poor CIPLA also not being able to market it in Europe and just having to just do it in America. And I'm not really, I mean, you know this, Callum, from from private conversations. I'm not exactly a bleeding heart, poor drug companies. They're just a bunch of good eggs trying to get by. Like, that's not the impression that I have of drug companies in general and drug companies that sell antivirals and antibiotics in particular. But in this case, you can't really blame them for what happened. Like they developed an antibiotic that was potentially very useful and regulation got in the way. Yeah. It, you know, there's enough difficulties with our so, so terms antibiotic pipeline. And uh, as you say, the economical situation, you know, it's much more profitable to go off and say, make a anti you know antihypertension drug or something that a patient is going to take every day for 30 40 years well or or even something that they'll take occasionally so like sildenafil viagra made 2 billion dollars every year for 20 years <laughs> that <laughs> is how you make money yeah. so that's so much more lucrative than any antimicrobial ever will be there's yeah. just no comparison between them and you know what's the big money in pharmaceuticals at the moment? It's biologicals because you can patent the biological, fine. But even after the biological patent runs out, 
your process for producing the biologic is trade secret. You don't need to release that. All the other companies know the structure, but they have to figure out how to make it themselves. They can't just take your technique. Your technique is is protected. And so that's why biologicals, they don't have Me Too drugs. They've got something called biosimilars. So drug companies love this because they they still keep on making loads of money after yeah. uh, the patent has expired. Because the biosimilars, they're only about a third to a half cheaper to make. I think this is a good example. of If you give Jame a forum to talk about pharmacology, then we'll just, <laughs> we'll just go off on some random tangent about drugs. But like the, po- the point is that there are more lucrative parts of the drug industry than antibiotics. And if you want antibiotics, and we kind of do, you really need to make it worth the drug company's while. Like it's all very well saying all these drug companies, they should be doing off the kindness of their heart, but that's not how corporate pharmaceutical industry works. Like they need to make a profit. And a lot of the time there will be funding from public bodies. There are, but in defense of capitalism, it's pretty efficient. And if if you're like initial research can be done at the university uh, stage, but quite often that's also done in commercial companies. But then if you want to commercialize it, you kind of need a company to to do that. Do you like? Could you not? You know, I think there's been arguments that that public ownership of of drug companies could have some benefits because you know a lot of the money is spent on on marketing it is a large chunk of the development cost of a new drug. And also, particularly in antibiotics, I think it's less like, you know, we have a lot less options. And so, you know, so I do wonder sometimes, like, the, the, the sort of marketing of it is, it, is that the right way to approach it? Or should it be more like what's happened with plasomycin, which is, I think most people come across it because it's in guidelines. Well, I mean, but how many guidelines have you seen plasomycin in? Two. It's it are there is that the ESMID and the IDSA ones that we yes. reviewed a few episodes right yes. okay so I mean that's it right like and I tell you I've never used it I think we all tried to use it once in in Nados North for someone and I can't remember why but the it, it's a bit like phosphomycin in the US like it it's not got a license blah 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 but you can import it you can get you can get your hands on it if you need to but. You know, there are licenses for keftazidine mavabatam and kefedericol and meropenem vaborbatam and imipenem silostatin relabatam. And if you've got something that's got a license for it that'll sort of do the job, it's kind of hard to argue for using plasmycin. Quite a long process to get a non-licensed drug for a patient. It's on a name patient basis. There's quite a lot of paperwork to go through. I think it has to be signed off by someone quite senior in the organization. Mm. But I mean, you can you can do it if you need to get your hands on it. We've done yeah. that with difficult to access drugs. Yeah, it's possible. But it is if you've got another drug that could work, even if it's not quite the right thing, or you know has higher risks, you probably just do that. Yeah. So I mean, I th- I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with the subscription model, the you know the Netflix model over the next few years, and see if it actually has an effect. I know that other companies are uh, sorry, other countries are watching with interest. Is this, the, is this the first time it's been done? I think NHS England's procurement is the first time it's been done. 
and I'm happy to be corrected. I think people have been talking about doing it for years, and NHS England are the first that have jumped. Yeah, uh, but I don't think anyone's. But I think actually there there might be another couple of countries that are doing it. Maybe Germany. I'm now I'm I'm now at the edge of my knowledge. Um, so I'll I'll say no more. But I'd be surprised if it didn't get done in a couple of other places. It makes sense. If you get enough groundswell of this, I think that a company could live off you know uh, off the subscription model. Because remember, like drug companies on their books at any one time, the ones that are kind of making, you know, drugs and bringing them to market and all that, they may only have like five or 10 at any one time. But, you know, like they, they might only have in, you know, for, for infection, uh, there are a bunch of drug companies that won't have any uh, anti-infectives. And there are a bunch that will only have like, you know, two or three. And the whole drug company might have on the market with a patent only about five to 10 uh, drugs at any one time yeah. so they kind of need to make their money it's going to be it's quite few drugs that are the, the real money makers as well so i'm thinking like in terms of our budget and what we spend it on i think dalbavantin is the antibiotic certainly in the infectious diseases units that the most money is spent on other than toculizumab which is a covid uh, biologic but mm-hmm. and it also means i think because there are more like so say like astrinam timocillin Dalbavancin. These drugs are more expensive than the others that we could use, like vancomycin or gentamicin for gum negatives. Tazacin is, is so cheap, and so you know, being in a in a very budget constrained setting, mm. you 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 know, you do have to put that into your decision making, and and there yeah. has to be a little bit of your brain that's thinking, well, I would like to use timocillin here, but actually tazacin is like a hundredth of the price or something, mm. and. That factors in. So I think the, the the interesting thing about a subscription model is it then allows you to say that doesn't that doesn't factor in because it's not going to yeah. cost us more. You you also have to be wary from a stewardship perspective because most of these drugs that are subscription models are things that we should be reserving for only when they're really necessary. But I think because they're going to be they're going to be needed approval by some sort of responsible person in the yeah in definitely. The patient, so. I think we may have split our audience, though, because, you know, your implicit in your statement uh, just there is that you weren't thinking about the cost before, which I think some of our American audience might be unfamiliar with. No, I, I, I'm I, definitely thinking about the, the cost of everything when we're doing it. It's not. The, it's obviously not the top of my mind. Well, all the time, it's first and foremost. No, no, not at all. Afford but I think that's, the thing that's that you realistic recommend. medicine is, is, you know, do you really need this test? You know, which which drug is that? And, you know, I think that's a part of everybody's responsibility in, in the NHS, at least, is to think about the budget and think about, you know, being judicious with resources because... You know, there is a lot of overdiagnosis, a lot of over uh, yeah, totally, treatment. Yeah. I think that that's true up to the point, Callum, but I think I'm going to disagree with you that I think that they should be thinking about it. I think that they should think what the best treatment for the patient is and then think about the cost. No, that's I agree. It's a secondary thing. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. It, but it's, it's in there. It's a secondary. It's definitely a secondary thing. Like if you've got two drug therapy options and one is much more expensive than the other and there's no good reason why one is better than the other, then you should yeah, choose yeah. one. But if one is more expensive, but we know from the evidence that it has better outcomes, then I would choose the more expensive one. Mm. 
because you know i guess from a broader perspective if it's got better outcomes then you probably will save money if you know you know their length of stay is shorter they have less complications or i mean you could do yeah but it's rare that that's it's rare that we have that sort of quality evidence to to be able to know that. So you're yeah, at, yeah. ended up being like, what's your experience and that sort of stuff, and that's where because it's not a firm right or wrong answer that maybe cost should come into it. Maybe I think it's got its limits though. Like uh, down in in Nador South, Timosilin is essentially never used because it's 150 quid a day, and Ertapenum is is six. Yeah, and then you have to rebalance that conversation with the thing of well, if we've got more carbapenemase producing bacteriales or organisms, then you know that's going to cost us a lot of money. Well, but I mean the the thing is that we don't have that right now, and that's always the argument. But because you know, like in in Nados North, we did used to use things like astreinam and timosilin as sparing. You know, so so that you didn't have to use, you know, peptas or or carbapenems, and that's because we were kind of averse to to using it. And if the patient was already on a mox met, and you just didn't want them to have more than three days of gentamicin, you could just like slot in timocillin or astreinam there. Yeah, I think we've tried to move away from that because it's been, it's been very expensive, hard to justify now. I think. I, I think, you know, there's other risks of carbapenems, like super broad spectrum, invasive candidal infection, you know, that it's yeah. not. But anyway, um, I thought, uh, well, this is just a wee short episode. Don't know how short it'll be in the end. But anyway, I thought it was worth discussion. Yeah, it's very sad about plasmycin. And thank you, James, for filling us in and as to w- what happened. And, you know, maybe we can sign a petition and get plasmycin back. I don't think so. Besides, we're not uh, privy to the EMA's whims anymore. Leave means leave, Callum. Oh, yeah, actually. So what's the UK? Um, MHRA. Yeah, the MHRA has now got control again. So maybe we could petition them? Uh, you could do. Or if we've got any American listeners out there, please send us plasmycin. Questions, comments, suggestions, why don't you send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Have a five-star review in your pocket. Me and Callum would love to receive it. Please drop that in your podcast player of choice. We tweet at idiots underscore pod, for now at least. And if you would like to give donations of coffee, there is a link to do so in the description. And until next time, I'm Jane. I'm Callum. See you then. Bye. Bye. Now that the episode's done, we hope you learn and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know.